You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for episode 133 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? I'm brilliant. How are you, sir? I'm all right. You know, I want to, to go ahead and let all of you out there listening know that we have some great deals. You can save from $70 to $250 instantly on Apple's mid-2017 MacBook Pros with no tax in 48 states, and that uh, AirPods are in stock with free two-day shipping. Apple Insider readers can use exclusive coupons to save on the mid-2017 MacBook Pro, and sales tax will not be collected on orders shipped outside of New York and New Jersey. This is through our good friends at Adorama, and... um, we are, we are happy to do it. The deals inside this are both promo code and link activated, so you have to go to the article that we'll link to in the show notes and click through that link and then apply the coupon code APINSIDER in the same buying session. Um, if you try and save the links for later, it'll generate an error, so you really have to go ahead and all in one go, click through the link, use the coupon code, and you can save anywhere from $70 to $250 off. For many people, that's an additional savings of roughly about $140 to $335, depending on how you configure the MacBook Pro. So this is a good thing to take advantage of if you've been looking for a new laptop. And as I say, Apple AirPods are in stock. Neil, you had you had uh, some experiences with AirPods, didn't you? I've had a few, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know you had the PowerBeats 3. What, what is the best thing about using AirPods? AirPods are the the best uh, commuting headphones. Um, they're okay for working out. They get the job done. I'm still a little paranoid that they might fall out, um, so I don't use them for that. But I have gone on runs, and I've never had one fall out. Uh, but it just feels weird that it's not totally secure, but they're perfect for, uh, you know, I'm getting on the train. I want to pop them in, uh, listen to something for like a 20-minute ride. Um, and then you get off and, and you pop them back into their case, put them back in your pocket. The music automatically pauses. They just work. Uh, they work fantastically, and they're going to be even more capable with iOS 11. Um, now uh, you'll be able to do separate controls for tapping the left and right earpieces. So currently, uh, no matter which one you tap, it'll pause or do Siri or whatever. Um, but with iOS 11, you're going to be able to do one command for one side and one for the other, which is pretty cool. Excellent. You know, there are a lot of people that think of, of the voice-first world, and voice-first comprises things like, you know, app like like, uh, Amazon Alexa and the Google Home speaker, and now Anchor's getting into it, making an a, uh, Amazon Alexa-enabled speaker or mm-hmm. the Apple HomePod. But really, Siri was was the very early indication of this voice-first kind of revolution. And putting AirPods in the ear in in that sort of world gives you a seamless access to saying, hey, Siri, or having Siri talk to you without having to interact with the phone or press a home button or or have it charged or anything like that. You just simply have them in your ear and you start using it. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's uh, uh, Apple's more subtle entry into the wearable devices market. And and also to the spoken AI market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, this is is one of those things where you have to have a internet-connected device in order to use Siri. You have to have either Wi-Fi working or you have to have LTE working, Right. Uh, especially if you're out in the world using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd, you'd have your phone in your pocket, you'd have your AirPods in your ears, and you can say, hey, Siri, and, and interact without having to touch anything. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's been missing out of that piece is the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch has always been dependent upon 
having a connection to a phone. Right. It will do Wi-Fi on its own if it's a near a known Wi-Fi network that was established on your phone. But yes, um, if you leave your phone at home uh, and you're not near like a known hotspot or something, then things like Siri become basically useless. We're talking about the possibility of an Apple Watch that has an LTE connection inside it. Yeah, I mean, all signs point to this happening this year. I know you and I have talked about it a lot, and uh, you know there were some questions to whether they would be able to do it. Uh, we now have three pretty reputable sources all saying that this year's Apple Watch is going to have an LTE optional model. So uh, that's about as good as you're going to get short of an actual confirmation from Apple. Now, one of the reports suggests that voice calls will not be supported. Yeah, I mean, voice calls in the cellular dial-a-number sense. Um, and the the reasoning behind that, th- this is some speculation by Ming-Chi Kuo, everybody's favorite analyst. And, uh, you know, th- the, the idea is that Apple wants to focus on data first and also uh, an interesting element bringing um, calls into the mix to be able to, you know, dial just a, anybody's number, even a landline from your from your watch, uh, not only complicates the contractual process of working out, uh, who, you know, what people are going to pay and, and what the services are for a connected wearable, uh, but it also creates technical considerations because most of the carriers in the U.S. are not doing voice over LTE currently. They're doing it over 3G. And in order to fit the modem and have it be, you know, uh, good for battery life into a watch, the expectation is this is, this radio is going to be LTE only. So uh, the rumor is that Apple's not going to offer traditional voice calling through a phone number on the watch for those two reasons. Uh, it makes it easier for them to negotiate lower rates and make it a data-only device with carriers, but also it allows them to just use an LTE radio, which makes it so that they, you know, they get faster data speeds and better battery life, but it also makes it difficult to do phone calls. So, Well, there are, there are regulatory concerns that come into that also. When you have a, a traditional cell phone device, you, you have to be able to call 911 and you have to be able to have them geolocate about where you are, right? That was what E911 was about. Uh-huh. And if this is not a, a mobile device that places calls in, in any traditional sense, then maybe it doesn't comply with those, right? How would you call 911 from a FaceTime call? Well, but that's the thing. It's rumored to include FaceTime. So. Right. That's that's what I'm saying. And so, you know, Fa- FaceTime is not a traditional phone service. Right. Right. And therefore, you, you don't call 911 from it. And, and maybe you don't have to. I, I don't know. Maybe they've worked this out already. But it's, um, it's, it's as you say, very different than a traditional phone device. I, I think that there's going to be workarounds for this anyhow. Um, a lot of um, carriers offer calling over Wi-Fi. Um, uh, there are services like Google voice, there are services like Skype and and what have you that allow you to get a number. Mm. And so this might be an area where Apple is just expecting that third party apps and their own FaceTime as well are going to fill the void, um, and make it so that you can make phone calls over data that at some point are, uh, you know, transferred over to traditional cell phone service through the, through the service, um, and traditional phone calls. So I, I think that, um, 
you know, assuming that they allow developers to do that kind of thing, uh, you could see a situation where you just install the Google Voice app on your watch or Skype or what have you. Um, and if you want to, you can use that to initiate calls outside of the realm of FaceTime built into the device. Um, and otherwise, you know, it's just not meant for that. But what I found very interesting about Ming-Chi Kuo's note was he said that one of the reasons that Apple wanted to do this is because they wanted to focus on making the the watch. He suggested that they want to make it more responsive and more uh, uh, a better experience for users. And, and I found that to be interesting because... What he was suggesting is that the process of tethering the watch to the phone right now is actually slowing down the watch in some ways. And so he seemed to be saying that adding an LTE radio would improve the performance of it and give you more instant access to data, perhaps even letting apps load faster and stuff like that. And it makes some sense because if you think about the first watch, uh, watch OS 1 when it came out, uh, offloaded the processing of apps and stuff, which is why you couldn't have native apps on the watch. It offloaded that to the phone and had the phone do the work and figure the phone has a bigger battery and, and whatever. Apple, over the years, has found ways to be a little bit more efficient, to run apps natively on the device, and realized that people weren't interacting with the device as much, which allowed them to have a little bit more leeway to get away with having the apps run directly on the device, even with the first generation hardware. So it sounds like adding an LTE radio may actually improve it in that sense, um, and perhaps uh, combined with a faster chip, presumably in a Series 3 watch, it just leads to an all-around better experience where the apps load faster, the data comes in faster, everything is just working faster. Uh, the question then becomes, and we talked about this a little bit last week, if you add LTE to a watch and you start relying on your phone less and your watch more, those savings in battery that Apple saw because people weren't interacting with the watch as much, do they start to go away because now you're raising your wrist more and interacting with the device more? Does that end up hurting battery life in addition to the uh, the inclusion of LTE? Uh, you know, and, and I'm just positing these questions because we don't know and we won't know until we get our hands on the device. But these are the kind of things that Apple internally is is dealing with and probably even unsure of in some ways, just as they had ideas about how people were going to use the watch when it first came out, and they turned out to be totally misguided. Uh, it will be interesting to see when the Apple is announced and launches uh, if, if any of those factors come into play and people see dramatically different battery life because of their use of it has changed completely. Hmm. Well, I think one of the interesting things that happens is that even if you start to use the watch more uh, interactively, you know, uh, the watch usage has been, let's say, passive, where you're viewing stuff or receiving information from it, mm -hmm. right? Primarily, that if it becomes much more balanced, if if you're using it now as as a way to respond to things or to create reminders or to create calendar events, things like that, that um, I think you use Siri a lot more to do that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and and having Siri always working, as you were referencing earlier with an LTE capable watch uh, makes a big difference. I think, you know, wearable Siri is way more convenient. Um, you know, just today uh, I didn't have my watch on. I was uh, getting out of bed and I pu pulled my phone off the dock and I laid it down on the bed face down and then I wanted to turn on the lights. And so I was trying to tell Siri to turn on the lights, but because the, the watch or because the phone was face down and I had my watch on uh, the Siri command didn't work. Uh, because it has to be face up at, you know, whatever. So that's one of those things where having the wearable device or in the future, having a home pod in your house will, will address that, that rare situation. But those things do happen. So when you turn on your lights, you say, Hey Siri, turn on the lights. Is that essentially it? Correct. Yeah. 
And because the phone was face down, it doesn't work? Mm -hmm. I, I put it face down on my bed, and because your phone is... Um, uh, it's interpreting as it being in your pocket or whatever. It uses the sensors on it. The same technology that's being used um, in the newer A9 and A10 chips or whatever um, to, to turn on the screen when you lift the phone. Um, it's also using some of that same technology between the screen being covered and all that, that uh, certain functions are turned off. And so if you lay your phone down face down, the screen automatically turns off to save battery life and if it's in your pocket and what have you. But it also uh, it disables automated Siri commands, which is the same reason that you can't invoke it while your phone's in your pocket. So having, an, you know, if I had my wrist watch on at that point, you just raise your wrist and you talk to it, it's done, it's easy and it works, it works instantly. Um, the... You know, you don't have that, though, if you're not wearing the watch. So, again, it's one of those things where or, or AirPods or anything like that, uh, those capabilities become more convenient um, and more instantly accessible because of wearable devices. Now, there's th this is not a completely sorted out piece of knowledge, right? We understand that it's very likely to happen, but... You know, there's there's still a possibility that it could ship with the Qualcomm modem. It could ship with the Intel modem. Yeah. And we have conflicting we reports on that. Yeah. Um, Bloomberg said it would have a Intel modem and Ming-Chi Kuo says it'll have a Qualcomm modem. Obviously, both could be right. And it could be like an iPhone 7 situation where uh, they're splitting the duties on, on it. Um, we will see. I, I, I don't think it really matter in the end to consumers. It, it may be a regional market thing too. It may be that um, one modem is better suited for certain uh, frequencies and carrier compatibility in certain parts of the world. Um, the other thing that's interesting is uh, there was a rumor that came out last week and we, we addressed it that, that Apple might uh, introduce a redesigned Apple watch this year, a, a complete, completely new look for it. Um, that was from John Gruber of uh, Daring Fireball. Uh, he did uh, update his story after he published it to uh, take a uh, to take a softer stance on it and say it was from an unconfirmed source or whatever, something that he wasn't really uh, trusting as much. But since then, uh, CNBC and uh, Ming-Chi Kuo have both weighed in to say it's going to have the same design. Now, again, that may be one of those situations where both are right and maybe it's not a radical redesign, but it looks sort of the same, you know, kind of like the iPhone 7 looks mostly like the iPhone 6S, but not quite. Um, um, and maybe not. Uh, we will see. But I think the expectation now is is softened a little bit. Don't expect like a brand new look or a circular watch face or anything like that. I think it's going to look mostly like the previous watch. What we know is that when Johnny Ive and his crew of designers, his team, arrive at a design that they think is the epitome of what a thing should be, that they aren't quick to change away from it. They will refine it, they will modify it, but they they don't abandon it for the sake of a timeline. Oh, another year has passed, we've got to change the shape, is, is not a requirement if they are content with what it is. Yeah, and that, and that makes sense. Um, obviously, new designs help drive sales, especially in some markets. Um, but you also have to look at what you're doing internally. And from a business perspective, you know, people hate to hear this kind of stuff, but I mean, Apple's in the business of making money. So, uh, it, from a, from a business perspective, sometimes maybe it makes sense to keep the same design, not invest in that and save it for a year where you don't have a lot of new features, right? 
So think about it this way. If they introduce LTE this year and it looks mostly the same, people want to buy it just to get LTE because they're a runner, because uh, you know they want to just leave their phone at home and not have a distraction while they're out at dinner or something like that. Uh, that's a selling point for a lot of people. Um, and then that allows them potentially to hold off on a major redesign or a circular watch face or what else they anything else they could do until next year. And that drives more sales for that year. Um, you know, it's an Apple's best interest to kind of spread some of these things out and not try to do too much at once as well. Because when you try to do too much at once, then you end up with some of these, uh, you know, so-called controversies that have happened in the past to a lot of companies, including Apple. You know, Antenna Gate with the iPhone 4 was addressed with the iPhone 4S. Uh, bend gate with the iPhone 6 was addressed with the iPhone 6s. Um, and while those were not the controversies that were played up to be, they were still, you know, uh, issues with the design of it that had to be addressed in next year's model. So I don't know that you want to do something like introduce LTE and a new way of interacting with the watch and, and more interaction with the watch and do a redesign and potentially take off all of your customers that have bought all these bands already for the watch that maybe don't fit it now. You know, like, well, how and much it's, do you it's want a way to, to tank. I mean, that would tank your, 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 your watch series two sales completely, right? There are right. people who may well want an Apple watch, but don't need to buy the LTE one. They'd be happy buying the, the sport version of the series two watch. Yeah. They may have no need for that. So, and when you do something that's so radically different, you, you depress the sales artificially right. of the other version. Yeah. Which is something that they'll probably see this year with the iPhone seven S and seven S plus possibly. You're going to have a completely new design on the iPhone 8. What is that going to do for iPhone 7S sales? Um, where do they price it? How do they, you know, there, there are so many questions there. It's going to be very interesting to see how they deal with it. Well, there, I think, because the the rumors all push to indicate that the cost of the iPhone 8 is going to be exorbitant, that there are people who will simply rationalize and say, I'll get the other one because it's priced much less. Mm-hmm. Right. So if it's not priced appreciably less than that, that changes the equation a little bit. But if if it's priced as they traditionally have been and the other one is significantly more, then people will stick with the, the one and just, you know. Yeah. You wonder how many people go, well, I can't get it. It's not in stock at the store and it's too expensive. Anyhow, I'll just wait for next year when it's more available and it comes down in price. Right. All, all justifications for making the decision the way they do. Yeah, you know, I, I don't I, I don't want the 7S because it's not as cool as the 8. I can't afford the 8, so I'm going to take a pass this year. I don't know if that's going to happen, but it's a possibility. Well, I think it's going to happen for some. The question is, does it happen for a large number? Right. And, and normally our expectation would be no, but there are some number of users who said the same thing when the iPhone 7 rolled around, and now they're on a 6 or a 6S that is becoming much longer in tooth. Well, that, that was what I did. I, I, I buy new phones every year and I got an SE. I had a 6S. I got an SE um, because I didn't really care about 3D touch. And then the 7 came around and it was like, well, this is a nice phone, but I have no interest in the 7S or in the 7 Plus because I don't want a phone that big. I want the dual camera of the 7 Plus, but that's it. And then you look at the 7 and it's like, well, what am I getting? I'm going to lose the headphone jack. The camera is basically comparable to the previous generation one that I already have. Um, unless you get the plus model, unless you get the plus, which I'm not going to get. So it was like, for me, I looked at the seven and it was like, well, there's no way I'm buying this thing because I, I, I just don't see, I don't, I don't see the appeal. I don't see the need for it. Um, but at some point, at some point you, you have to make this kind of move. You know, you, as you say, you buy new phones every year. I do not. Well, I, I, I don't I, now I stopped. Yeah. 
So um, in the house, the two iPhones that are currently in use in the two in the house's primary iPhones are an iPhone 6, 128 gig, mm-hmm. and an iPhone 5, 32 gig. And as you know, that iPhone 5 is is end of life. Yeah. That it's a 32-bit processor and a 64-bit app scroll. No touch ID. Uh, no, well, no touch ID, but the, the user who uses it can live with that. Um, but the notion that there are going to be no more OS upgrades... There are going to be app updates that pretty much make the apps that are on there useless over time because so many of the apps that you have are not standalone products. They're products that work with a website, Amazon, for example. Right. Right. All it takes is for Amazon to change the way they communicate between the app and their servers and only the 64-bit version of the app gets updated and the app on your iPhone 5 is now useless. Right. And that happens for video streaming services as well. Uh, you, you end up with a phone that very quickly becomes a an, an object of art, <laughs> less than a phone. And uh, so, so now I got to figure out what's the correct path here. What are we going to do? Are we going to turn that iPhone 5 into an iPhone SE? Are we going to turn that into something else? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do either because, again, the iPhone 7 is a great phone. It's not that I think that it's a bad phone. It's just for my particular use case and what I prefer – and what I would want out of an upgrade, there is really no sense for me to go from an SE or even the success to a seven, uh, because while I don't really care about the omission of the headphone jack, uh, it's also like, okay, I'm going to upgrade and lose the headphone jack. And the camera is basically the same as the previous one. So what am I do? Get like the jet black model. That's gonna be my thing or the 256 gig capacity, which would be nice, but those just weren't enough to, to convince me to spend like $900 on a phone. So I'm very curious to see this year because I would be inclined to go for the 7S if it had the dual camera, uh, but all indications are that it's not. It's still going to have a single camera. So if you want the the dual camera, you're going to have to either get the 7S Plus or you're going to have to get the 8. And you know, I don't know if I'm going to want to spend $1,200 or more or whatever on a big phone uh, for the iPhone 8. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, I got to wait and see what they announce. But I was thinking about this last night. And, you know, obviously, Apple's technology over the years tends to trickle down to other devices, legacy devices, whatever, which is how we now have a $330 iPad that's just an amazing iPad, right? doesn't have some of the bells or, and whistles. Or the SE that was largely an iPhone 6 kind of success, thing. 6S, actually, no. 6S, yeah, right? Was, yeah, it was the yeah. same processor and camera as the 6S. So you see it trickle down to the cheaper stuff, and it leads to some great products. And so I was thinking today, how awesome would it be? I don't know that this is going to happen, but imagine like three or four years from now that Apple's solved the, all the OLED problems. There's plenty of OLED out there, the design, whatever. How awesome would it be if we had like a iPhone SE size phone with the edge to edge display, or even like go back to an iPhone 4, 4S size phone with an iPhone SE size display, no bezel top to bottom. You have a really small phone. You have a screen size that, you know, matches the one, uh, one bigger size than it, uh, you know, that previously existed. So imagine if you had an iPhone SE with an edge-to-edge display that was about the size of a uh, iPhone Seven, right? Okay, I'm going to say a couple of things to this because I, I like the idea. I like where you're going with it, mm-hmm. but counterpoint a little bit. One of the things is that e- even when people, so so people like large displays, right? Right. But there's something about the physical size that people seem to gravitate to, even if the display is larger on the smaller sized device, mm-hmm. that that people still like the idea of having something quite large. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, 
not exactly explainable, but it's certainly observable. Yeah. Right? And then there are all kinds of things that factor into that, the same way that that spending more equals better quality, the same way that, that people have these perceptions sure. that maybe aren't necessarily true, but they factor into buying decisions. Yeah. I want the good one. Yeah. I want the big one. I want the one that's meant for semi-pros, mm-hmm. right? The other thing that I think is important to factor in here is we're, we're talking about this from a primarily American standpoint, North American standpoint. Mm-hmm. You, you're in New York. I'm here on the East Coast. We understand this in the context of, of North America. But there's India. There's South America. There's China, which have very different, let's say, uh, demographics and economics and what it means to spend that much money on a phone and also the social status that it has. You know, I saw people walking around with belt clips. And in, the, in North America, we don't see belt clips very often. People don't really wear belt clips. Phones go in pockets, right? Right. The point was to have a case that had a circle to show that it had the Apple symbol on it. Of course. And then have a belt clip that allowed it to face out so that everyone could see that you were carrying the Apple device because this is a status symbol. Your iPhone belt buckle. Uh, dude. How better to show that you are a person of means than to show that you have the iPhone? Oh, this is a thing. Yeah. And, you know, you, 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 we talk a lot about developing nations and developing world and developing economies and how people are using electronic payments, not unlike Apple Pay, but, but you know, using M-Pesa, for example, in, uh, in Kenya mm-hmm. to, to make payments, things like that using um and, and there are a lot of android devices that get sold into these countries and not just the off-brand no-name ones that you've never heard of in north america but the main brand ones because people aspire to those brands people aspire to own a samsung or aspire to own an lg right because it's the device that has the better name and it costs more but it's it's in their buying decision worth it and and iphone is a part of that yeah so the question is what does apple do to make these devices that are capable, that are priced accessible to more people while still holding the status symbol, mm-hmm. right? There are all kinds of equations that go into this, all kinds of, of considerations that have to be placed because that's a different market. But Apple sells the one phone well, or, or technically the three or four phones, yeah. but still it's the, the one thing called an iPhone. Yeah. So your trickle-down technology really does work for those markets, but- It takes time. It takes time, and does that still have the same status symbol over there is a good question. Uh, I mean, I think so, because it's not like Apple's stuff is exceptionally cheap. I mean, Amazon's selling tablets for 50 bucks. Um, a $330 iPad, while it's a great value, is still one of the more expensive tablets on the market. Uh, you go to the store and check out, and, and most, most tablets gravitate toward the $500 price point because that's the price point Apple established back in 2010. You know, you have some higher end stuff, Microsoft Surface going for that market. Um, you you have some cheaper stuff, but 500 is where, you know, the, the nice Samsung tablets or whatever are playing. They're playing in that four to $500 range. Um, and you've seen Apple kind of go in two different directions, cheaper and more expensive. But they're still a premium brand in, in, the, in the sense that, uh, it's not like cheap junk and it's not priced as cheap junk. They're not, they're not selling a 
$150 tablet or anything like that. But, you know, if if the Apple Watch is is a great example where I think they're down to, you know, 260 now or whatever on the on the Series One watch, 270 somewhere in that price range. If they could get the Apple Watch down to like 199 with the current equivalent of a Series One or, you know, whatever they want to change it doesn't have to have GPS, Um, you know, maybe get a little bit more onboard storage uh, up to like 16 gigs or something like that. Um, I mean, that's we we talked about a few weeks ago when when the when the iPod uh, lineup was reduced down to just the iPod Touch and and how the Apple Watch is the successor for a lot of those smaller iPods, the Nano and all that. I think a 199 Apple Watch, especially if you know a few years from now they can get to that price point and make it completely independent of the phone and maybe even work with an Android device or something. I think they start mopping up the wearables market at that price point and those capabilities. I think that it's game over because, you know, you're looking at a Fitbit that's going to be $100, $150 for the most part, although they have way more expensive Fitbits. But if, you, if you're going to spend $100, $150 on a Fitbit, then you start to look at the $200 Apple Watch and go, oh, it's not really a bad price, right? Um, and you get that status symbol, you get that quality, you get all those things you were talking about. Um, and it's still not cheaper than the other options on the market, but um, it it is at a competitive price. Yeah. The, the, the reason that I see people wearing Fitbits is either because of price or because they're aiming for a slimmer, sleeker device that is more jewelry-like than the Apple Watch. Right, right, yeah. You know, the Alta, for example. And there are still the holdouts that Pebble will be reappearing somehow in some form from Fitbit. Nope. I know. I know. But there are diehards out there. I liked my Pebble. I had it for a few years before the Apple Watch came out. It was a, it was geeky and it was um, uh, not the greatest device, but what it did, it did pretty well. Um, and it had a decent uh, developer community. Um, and yeah, I was, I was generally pretty pleased with how some of it worked. And there were some things that worked on the Pebble that still work better than the Apple Watch, uh, does. Like, for example, um, one of the things that I really liked was if I started a run on RunKeeper on my phone, it automatically hijacked the watch and started displaying the status of my run. I can't do that with the Apple Watch currently. I have to load it up on my watch, and then sometimes it doesn't play nice, and it says, oh, you've started right on your phone. And it's like, well, I want to I want to view it on my watch, you know? Um, there needs to be that sort of uh, interact with it less, um, automatically do what I want. If I start a run on my phone with RunKeeper, my phone and my watch should be smart enough to know, okay, this guy doesn't want to see anything on his watch except for the run right now. Let's just show him that. Yeah. I really liked pebbles handling of the timeline for your day and events kind of thing they did that really well especially in their last versions of the os that they released and my hope is that the siri watch face coming in watch os 4 right yeah captures that character for me yeah i've i have not messed around with watch os 4 yet so i've just seen videos and and apple's description of it um but uh i i am hopeful for it i just can't install it currently because uh uh, you know, <laughs> you're not installing betas on your primary. Phone, <laughs> yeah, well, you got to mail in your watch if it if it goes bad. So yeah, uh, I, I do hope that, uh, and I, I know that as of the latest beta, it isn't. But I interacted with one of the uh, watchOS developers on Twitter, um, and he told me to send in something which you did on my half be- behalf because I don't have a developer account. But uh, hoping that they will allow more than two gigabytes of music on the watch because. You know, I've got like five gigs free on my watch. Let me fill it up with whatever I want. I, you know, if I don't yeah, want to put apps on, you've mentioned on, this one before. Yeah. So let me let me ask you. 
I, I have the first generation watch, not not a series one, but the the series zero, if you will, or the first released watch. Yeah. And I was debating updating it to watchOS four and trying it out a little bit. But my question is, given the rumor for an LTE watch, what would you advise me? Should I sell this thing now and wait until the next thing's released and buy it? Or I mean, you're not I wearing a daily thing. You're not wearing a daily anyhow, right? So I would just sell it now to try to get a little bit more money out of it. I, you know, I, it's 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 cool that the first watch is still being supported. Uh, my wife has hers and she wears it every day. Um, but everything is faster with the second generation watch. Um, you know, watch OS three runs fine on the first gen watch. It's not bad, but, uh, just opening apps and using Siri and things like that, um, are a lot faster with the newer processors, um, in the, in the newer models, both the series one and the series two. So the first generation watch, um, I would say if you had that one, you're probably going to want to get the series three, especially if you're interested in LTE watch. Uh, if you're not interested in LTE, then maybe the Series 2 is good for you. Wait till the 3 comes out and then buy it at a discounted price. Uh, but I've been very happy with my Series 2. Um, I, I The only thing is I've been running with my phone again just because of the aforementioned music issue where I can only have so much on there. And the process of transferring music to your watch is still a nightmare and they need to fix that in the software. But uh, if the LTE watch allows me to stream my music from Apple Music or, uh, or iCloud uh, Music Library... Uh, that for me is going to be a game changer. You know, I you're, you're going to laugh. You know how some people have first generation iPods still in the box and shrink wrap, yeah. and speculatively sell them for a thousand bucks because it's still new in box kind of thing, or the first iPhone still new in box. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I have the, one of the original watches still in shrink wrap. Oh boy, never used. <laughs> you think that's going to be a hot ticket? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Right. If one of our listeners wants to have a fresh watch running watch OS one, let me know. <laughs> we, we've talked a lot about how expensive the potential iPhone eight is going to be. And I've been thinking about this, you know, I have, I have people who, who say, when should I buy a phone? When's the right time to buy the phone? And I think my answer so far has been, that the right time to buy the phone is A, when you need it, obviously, and, and B, when your carrier or the carrier that you decide you want to switch to has an offer that makes it worthwhile. You know, in in uh, last September, there were a bunch of different offers about turning in your old phone to get an update kind of thing. Uh, in March, T-Mobile ran a special where they would give you a free iPhone 7, 32 gig if you turn in your iPhone 6. Mm-hmm. There, there were offers abound, and these offers come up from time to time. And the point is to watch for these offers. But if you're not going to take advantage of one of those, Apple has the iPhone upgrade program. Mm-hmm. And the upgrade program has tended to make phones available for $30 a month, $40, $45 a month. And if an iPhone 8 is around $50 a month, that is something that's totally sustainable for a number of people. Right. We're putting out you know, $1,000 initially. Might not be putting out the, the $50 a month. Could be. And I, I recommend I recommend it to a lot of people if they're going to buy Apple Care because it's an interest free loan. Like 
I think taking interest on buying something like a phone or f- that you may break or furniture or whatever is one of the worst financial decisions you can make. But when there's no interest on it, you you have nothing to lose. You're basically taking the payment you would have made up front and stretching it out over two years. So it's a good financial decision for, for people to make if you're planning to buy Apple Care. If you don't plan to buy Apple Care, then then you're spending, spending another $130. So that's the catch. Yeah. Now, there are alternatives to Apple Care, things like Square Trade, and, and I know people that have used those quite successfully for claims. Yeah. But I've I've always had Apple Care on my phones, and they've worked very well. I've never had program. Apple Care, and I've never cracked a screen. I, I have never cracked a screen, but I have exercised it on camera and on a home button that rotated funny and on um, battery. I just go on and give them a hard time, and they usually swap it out. Because I buy the new phone every year, mostly anyhow, um, go in and give them a hard time. And then they, and then they, if it's within a year or, you know, 13 months or whatever, it may take a couple tries, but then they usually just say, okay, we'll give you the phone. Yeah. But if you're on the two year program, right. If you're going to keep a two year cycle, if you're going to keep your phone for two years, yeah, past that second year, it's not. I, I keep thinking about the iPhone upgrade program. The The only thing that concerns me about it at all is that the, the way the program works is that you you pay all the money in, and then when the new phone is introduced, you should be able to switch to the new program, new new device. Mm-hmm. You turn your device in for the newer model the following year. Yeah. Right? And this was the, the first year that it had actually run for a full year was with the iPhone 7 introduction. Yeah. And a number of people were disappointed to find out that – at the end of their year, there were no iPhone 7s available to them. Right. I mean, they can only make so many phones. So, Well, that's that's right, except that the way that they people had felt they'd understood the program was that they would be entitled to it. And, and certainly they were, except that there weren't available and they were disappointed that none were set aside. You, you got you to gotta wait in line like everybody else. Yeah, and that was never really explained. Right. I, I don't know what people expected. I think it's a dumb thing to get upset. People with. expected to be able to rock up and have a phone when no one else could. And the other thing to remember is that the program does not require you to swap it out every year. That's just an option. You could just pay it off over two years and be done with it. Yeah, you, you could. But the balance of having a new phone every year, having a new phone that has the Apple Care coverage every year, and um, it's like leasing a car. You pay the payments in perpetuity, and after a certain amount of time, you can trade it in for a newer model and keep making the same payment. Yes, except without interest, because that's better, right? Well, when you're leasing a car, you're just you're just paying the money anyhow. So at least at least you own something at the end of two years if you decide to stop upgrading your phone. Right, and that's why the Apple iPhone program makes more sense than leasing a car. Yes. Right, but I, the idea is they want people to just keep paying in perpetuity, much like a lease. So, you know, the idea would be you're an iPhone fanatic, you get the upgrade program because you're going to get the new phone every year anyhow, and until you're in the ground, you're going to keep getting a new phone every year and you're going to keep paying us $50 a month. Mm-hmm. And and that makes it potentially, uh, what we're getting to here is... Um, uh, was uh, Barclays, I believe, uh, put out a research note last week saying that uh, they see the uh, upgrade pricing program uh, well-suited for the iPhone 8 because if the phone's going to cost $1,000 and up, a lot of customers are not going to be able to afford that payment right up front. But when you split that 24 ways, uh, no interest, uh, it ends up being under $50 a month for a service plan. So um, 
for or for the upgrade plan. So, you know, that that's one of those things where Apple kind of set the stage for this a couple of years ago and maybe knew that they were going to do this. Uh, it now makes it so that buying that super expensive phone is not as difficult for a lot of consumers. Assuming they can make enough iPhone 8 units, it may end up beating the saving grace of the higher price. Yeah. You know, at this point, I want to go ahead and, and mention something to you, our, our listeners. You know, I am really grateful that we have you guys out there listening, have you have you folks out there uh, sending us questions and giving us feedback. And I, I want to make it known that we have advertising slots. From time to time, we'll read an advertisement, we'll, we'll endorse a product, things like this. And I want to open that up to all of you out there. You're our best dressed, our most handsome, our, our most well-groomed people. And if you have something that you'd like to advertise to all of your fellow listeners, really the best of humanity, please contact us and we'll help you, be happy to help set you up. We appreciate you listening to us every week. We know we have some passionate fans out there and, and that's pretty great. Um, if you do like the show, I would encourage you to go and uh, uh, not only subscribe on iTunes, but leave a review for us. Um, uh, especially if you like the show, we like the reviews, but even if you don't, um, the reviews help a lot. And, uh, it's very kind of you that go there and leave the four and five star reviews and say how great we are. So thank you. Thank you. Now come to the, uh, the, the political section of our program. Mm -hmm. And this is really two stories that we ran. Um, if, if you've been following, national news or, or even world news at all. You know that there were protests and counter-protests that ended in violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, and that um, coincident with that, there was the President's Council on uh, Manufacturing that had many CEOs on the board of it, and many CEOs started resigning from that board, and the President canceled that uh, that that uh, council and there were a number of CEOs that that have posted public letters responding to or commenting on the events in Charlottesville and and also on that council right and Tim Cook's contribution to that was a letter that he sent to staff to to Apple employees um, really letting them know in in no uncertain terms that this is an, an issue of morality that that human rights are an issue of morality not just of politics. And that everyone must stand together f to ensure equal rights for all. That uh, that it's not about the left, the right, conservative or liberal. It's about human decency and morality. And that Tim Cook disagrees with the president and others who believe that there's a moral equivalence between white supremacists and Nazis and those who oppose them by standing up for human rights. Equating the two runs counter to our ideals as Americans. Cook called the events in Charlottesville repulsive, and the company is donating a pair of $1 million contributions. So $1 million will be donated to the Southern Poverty Law Center, and $1 million will be donated to the Anti-Defamation League. The company is also matching employee donations to those and other human rights groups on a two-to-one basis through September 30th. It looks as if they're going to open up iTunes donations as well in the coming days. Yeah, um... And, you know, you said this is a political issue. I don't even know that I would call this a political issue. It's just more of a human decency issue. Um, there are some terrible people out there who stand for some terrible things um, and did some terrible things in Charlottesville this past weekend. And obviously our hearts go out to those that were affected by all that and the 
the terror that that occurred there. Um, Apple has also uh, stepped up because um, a lot of these um, racist uh, white supremacist websites, uh, neo-Nazi, whatever you want to call them, scumbags, um, they raise money through their websites. They sell goods on their websites. They're they're on you know Kickstarter and GoFundMe to to fuel their hate campaigns. Um, and a lot of uh, a few companies at least have stood up um, and done something about it. And one of those is Apple. Um, so some of these websites uh, were selling goods or taking donations or whatever, and they accepted Apple Pay on their websites. And uh, Apple has since stepped in. Um, and prevented that from happening. They no longer accept Apple Pay. I know that PayPal has done some of it as well. Um, there's actually a campaign out there going on right now by a racial justice organization called Color of Change. Um, they instituted a new initiative this week called Blood Money. Um, and if you go to their website, uh, bloodmoney.org, um, basically what they're trying to do is strong arm and, and pressure credit card companies into uh, blocking some of these hate groups that are out there that are raising money for their causes because uh, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and Discover all run transactions to these websites and they take a cut, they take a, a share of the transaction. Um, and so if you go on there and you scroll down, you can see uh, who's still um, participating with these websites and, and doing business with them essentially. Um, and PayPal and Apple Pay uh, are really the two that uh, have gone out of their way uh, thus far to stop um, uh, ex pay accepting payments from these sites. And in fact, if you look at Apple Pay uh, on the list, they are the only one that has been removed from every single hate site listed by Blood Money. Uh, so they have over 100 uh, organizations on here that they're tracking. Um, Apple Pay previously was only accepted at a few of them. Uh, Apple has removed Apple Pay from every single one of those pages. So good on Apple for, for being proactive um, and stepping in to do something where they can. And, you know, this is really laudable. They didn't have to uh, necessarily step in. Now, certainly they could have done something about the payments, but they didn't have to donate $2 million or they didn't have to match employee donations two to one. They they could have matched one to one. They could have decided not to match at all. This is really one of the things that makes Apple such an interesting company to watch is that they have a conscience, and that conscience extends from the top right. down. And they're not afraid of making that aware. You know, there there are many companies out there that would write a statement late, would write a very vague statement that would. Um, be hesitant to publish one at all. And Apple has made it very clear in, in no uncertain terms exactly what they find repulsive and exactly who they're going to support instead. Right. And that, uh, you know, the, the uh, end of the letter that Mr. Cook sent says, quotes Dr. Martin Luther King saying, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. So we will continue to speak up. These have been dark days, but I remain as optimistic as ever that the future is bright. Apple can and will play an important role in bringing about positive change. Yeah, and 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 good for Apple on doing all this. You know, free speech is a is a touchy subject in this country for a lot of reasons, and, and we pride it certainly. Um, <clears throat> myself being a journalist, you know, us working on this podcast, the the ability to say what we want, uh, but there's a big difference between free speech and hate speech. And uh, sometimes sometimes people may say the lines are blurred, but in, in these cases of these websites, uh, it was pretty clear what the intent was and what they were going for. And so it was great for Apple to step in and do something about it.
I, I would I would say that you know the, the thing, one of the things about free speech is that it allows us to debate right. topics and talk about where we align and where we disagree and things like that. I, I would say that from a legal and governmental standpoint, there is no distinction between free speech and hate speech. But in terms of of human decency and the way that we act towards each other and the way that that we honor human life and respect each other as humans, that, you know, as, as Tim Cook says, you can't remain silent. We have to go out of our way to to reject that which is repulsive to us. And, and Apple as a private business does not have to adhere to the same First Amendment laws that a public institution may f- feel compelled to do in, in, in permitting and sharing of space and stuff like that. So this is well within Apple's rights to do it, and, and they were right to do it. Absolutely. Moving on to something a little easier to talk <laughs> about, and I'm glad we spent time on that. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I think about is that what's easiest is not always right. So what's right. It was, it's right that Tim Cook did that. It's right that Apple's done that. And it was right for us to talk about it. But it was certainly not as easy as some things like, like you know, the next topic, like Apple spending a billion dollars on original content for up to 10 new TV shows. Yeah. These, these are dark. <laughs> it's a little easier. <laughs> these are dark days right now. Um, and it's good to see Apple doing something about it. But they also run a business. So uh, they, they, yeah. while they have a cause, they also want to entertain you. Apple made a number of hires, right? They hired some people away from Sony to be head of, to be part of their their content team. They've hired the former president of WGN America. They've they've got um, they're, they're amassing a group of people to put together what is going to be or what they intend to be a content powerhouse. I think that I think they're now, too late to the game here. Well, okay, so let's let's talk about what the game what the landscape right. is. Obviously, there's Netflix. Uh-huh. Netflix has been around for a dozen years, but Netflix has only in the past, let's say, three or four years, three years, really begun focusing on original right. content. And it's been hit or miss for them. They've had some good shows. They've I had think some it's shows been, that it's have been mostly out. hit for Netflix. Netflix is doing very, very well in the original content department. Um, yes, but I can think of a number of the ones that they've canceled. They only recently canceled their first show like two months ago. <laughs> No, no, no. Sense8 and yeah, like Lily Hammer, I think was the first one that they that they canceled. They only did yeah, that. Re- Lily Hammer was from four. Yeah, years but that ago. was the that was the first one they canceled, ago. and they 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 had it around for multiple seasons. Yeah. Two, I think. Um, the uh, Sense8 died a quick death. Uh, House of Cards has finally come to an end. No, I, I hope. don't think so. They just had their most recent season there. Yeah, aren't aren't they out of material now? <laughs> it's getting harder. I, I don't harder understand what the hate is on Netflix. If you look at their batting average compared to the average broadcast television station, Netflix is hitting it out of oh, the yeah. park. If we're gonna agree- so it's it's not a matter of hate. It's just a matter of of trying to look at them honestly. Well, we can look at them honestly, and we can say what are they? Of canceling? course, they're canceled shows. Everybody's going to cancel shows. That's the way things work. Not everything can go on forever. Uh, but I mean, yeah. they bring back series limited sometimes in fashion, whatever, you know, the wet hot American summer revival just had a second season, uh, from that movie. Um, you know, orange is the new black. Uh, they have, uh, this Friday, the defenders is coming out. Uh, you know, they, they have stuff that flies under the radar that, that comes out and it's just like dropped on a Friday and then they start hearing about it, like, uh, Santa Clarita diet and stuff that came out earlier this year. Uh, obviously, yeah. uh, I don't know that we're going to see a second. I don't know. It was pretty under the radar, but I mean, it was enjoyable. Uh, Obviously, people are very hyped for Stranger Things coming. That was a cultural phenomenon. 
Yeah, Stranger Things season two is going to be right. A that, but I mean, uh, okay, so that's that's Netflix. Yeah. They're they're they have some definite wins. HBO would have, love to have as many wins as Netflix does. Old HBO used to. Not really. They they've never had more than three yeah. or four shows hot at a time. You could probably name ten shows right now that people love on Netflix. All right. Amazon Prime Instant Video. Right. That they've got some series as well. I, that just feels like a, a, in some ways to me, like a vanity project for for Jeff Bezos or something. Like they've got like five seasons of Mozart in the Jungle. I didn't even know this show existed. Who watches this? They have done very well. They've got some some good Emmy winning shows. They have had some. Well, big they're doing successes. feature films now too. I saw their uh, very elaborate uh, title card before. I saw went and saw the Big Sick last weekend and. And uh, Amazon Studios is responsible for that. And obviously, they won an Oscar with uh, the Casey Affleck movie, uh, Manchester, whatever that. Uh, yeah, Manchester by the Sea. By the sea. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they're, they're. But a lot of this content that they're making, like, you know, shows like Bosch or whatever, I wonder, like, who watches this? Like, is anybody out there? I watched all seasons of okay, Bosch. Well, okay, like, well, there, there you go. Like, <laughs> I don't. Harry Bosch. My problem with this, yeah. and the reason I think Apple's too late to the game, is I don't have time. Like, I have, I'm kind of happy that that Amazon still isn't on Apple TV, just because I I don't have the time to even sit down and watch Man in the High Castle. I can barely keep up with the Netflix and HBO stuff and and cable and broadcast. Like, there's just way too much content out there. You can't possibly consume so, it all. And so, why am I going to really want to sit down and watch? Uh, uh, Planet of the Apps from Apple, which is a complete piece of garbage. That, those, that's what I'm getting at here. So Apple has a couple of stinkers yeah. out the door, right? Planet of the Apps was not a real strong success for them. Carpool Karaoke is getting terrible reviews. So they've got they they they've started late. They've started on the back foot. They need to be able to come out with some new content that will help them take off where they haven't been so far. I think Amazon has been limited because Amazon has artificially limited themselves to the devices that they're able to play on. You can play Amazon Instant Video on an iPhone or on an Android device. Um, you cannot Chromecast it. You cannot display it on an Apple TV. You can only watch it on an Amazon Fire well, it's Stick, coming Fire to Apple TV, TV this or fall, Roku. So it doesn't matter. It's coming to Apple TV this fall. And my, my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's going to be indexed both by voice search for Siri and also be indexed into And it's going to be a app. huge boon for Amazon, yeah. It's a big win for Amazon. It's going to be a huge boost for Amazon. That's really going to make it a first season thing, where now it's available on Roku, on Fire, And then maybe I'll sit down and watch Bosch. I don't know. There are some good ones on Amazon Fire. On Amazon. Yeah, Amazon. I mean, I, I hear I, you know, I, I hear there's good stuff on Hulu, too. Everybody's talking about The Handmaid's Tale. I, I don't... I'm, uh, yes. I, well, I'm not going to pay for Hulu. And, and Hulu Hulu is integrated into the TV app. In I'm not going to pay TV. for Hulu and Netflix and HBO and Showtime. And, like, it's it's too much. But you just said that HBO has not got a whole lot of shows going on, so kill it. I watch Game of Thrones. I watch um, John Oliver. Um, I watch Westworld. I watch um, Bill Maher's program. Um, I watch a lot of things on HBO. I enjoy HBO. I was just saying that they don't have a lot going on in terms of like cultural zeitgeist uh, buzz. There's Game of Thrones, absolutely. 
but they have a lot of shows that come out that, you know, like I really enjoyed The Leftovers and they, they just wrapped that series a few months ago. Uh, I thought that was one of the best shows on television, uh, but it only got one Emmy nod. Um, it was kind of a quiet, uh, you know, the, the, the fans were passionate, but I'm not to say that I'm not saying there's not quality on HBO. Certainly there's very high quality. Uh, it's just that the 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 cultural relevance of a lot of those shows is not the same level as the Netflix influence right now. Netflix has a number of shows that everybody is talking about um, and and good for Netflix. I mean, that's awesome. And, and, and that's the thing that bothers me the most about Apple's content play is how embarrassing it is for a company that supposedly is invested in quality and is cool and hip, you know, like. You know, say what you will about Coldplay. I think they're freaking terrible. But, you know, their alignment with bands like Coldplay or U2, it's very populist, very uh, mainstream, safe, whatever. You know, there's not a lot of, like, edgy partnerships or groundbreaking stuff going on at Apple. And so when you look at their first two shows out of the gate, it just plays into that same culture that they have where it's just like this safe, mass market, vanilla whatever, you know, planet of the apps, it's reality show crap. Who cares? Uh Definitely. Yeah, um, uh, uh, and now carpool karaoke. I mean, you know, I've seen that James Corden bit. It's fine. It's whatever. It's cute. It's it's mainstream nonsense. And if you really want to make an impact when it comes to entertainment and television, you have to do something that not only pleases the crowd, but also surprises them and takes them in places that they didn't expect to go and does something new and different and shakes it up a little bit. And Apple's content play thus far has been downright embarrassing. And I think they're too late to the game. I don't think I'll really care. You know, if they come out with some really amazing you know, show that everybody's talking about. Well, Maybe I'll check it out. But, but even then, it's like so, you know, th- 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 even the branding they branded this as Apple Music, and now they're going to start putting video on it. It's just like iTunes. Like they can't think one one foot in front of them. Here's what I want out of out of this stuff. I want all of these things to be in the TV app aggregated, so that I don't have to care who's right. providing it. That's that's where this goes. I don't care if it comes from Apple. I don't care if it comes from Amazon. It's going to be all aggregated within the TV app. And as long sense as you're paying everybody ten dollars a month, yeah. Well, that's where we're headed, right? That, that's how this happened. Is that we were talking to the we, we all had cable, we all had satellite, and we were all paying one hundred and thirty dollars a month for a lineup of channels when we were watching maybe a, a few handful of the channels and. All of, all of the nerds got together and said, why can't we pay for something in a la carte? Why can't we get just what we want? Well, now you can in the worst way possible. Yeah, like I watch um, – and, and that's why AT&T has the Direct TV Now, yeah. I think they call it, and they're offering an Apple TV for three months sign up yeah. kind of deal. Um, it, the, all this stuff. And it becomes a nightmare to manage it too. They, they hope that you're going to get lazy and just keep paying them. Like I watch uh, Ash versus Evil Dead on, on Stars, and that airs you know, for, for – a month and a half out of the year, I pay for two months of stars and then I cancel it because if I buy it on iTunes and I wait for it to come out, I'm going to be six months behind and I'm going to pay 40 bucks for it. Or I could pay $10 two times and be done with it and get to see it as it airs. So you spend half the price right. and you get it Im- immediately. And then I have to cancel it. You know, most consumers aren't going to bother so, with that. They're just going to go, eh, you know what? I don't have Hulu. I don't have uh, stars. I don't have whatever, and I'm not going to sign up and then go back and cancel. I just never watch it. There's enough other crap out there to watch. So, well, right, but you you end up picking two or three providers, yeah. right? You you pick your your Netflix, you pick your Hulu, you pick your PS View, yeah. for example. Well, that's cable, but yeah, right. 
or or you pick well so disney just said that they're pulling all of their stuff out of everyone else's and they're going to launch their own well except for except for star wars and marvel but well right and marvel's having a ton of success on netflix at the moment well that's a yeah that's a partnership with disney that's different but apparently it's to be determined what's going to happen to the marvel cinematic films they may not be pulled as part of the disney deal but disney's going to take their own uh you know the kids' movies, Toy Story, and all that kind of stuff, um, and they're going to launch their own. And plus, they have all the programming they've done on Disney Channel and all that. They, they have millions of hours of content they've created. So yeah, they can create their own thing and sell it to families and kids. Yep, and it'll come either directly through them, or they can, you know, do something like buy up Verizon and partner with Verizon to distribute it through FiOS. I mean, it becomes a question: they at what, at what cool point? Stuff. Does it reach a saturation point, right? Because, uh, like, I pay um, NHL Game Center so I can stream hockey throughout the season. I pay for NFL Red Zone so I can see out-of-market football games. I pay for WWE Network so I can see their live pay-per-views. I pay for, you know, all these things in addition to Netflix, in addition to my cable, in addition to my internet, in addition to whatever. And, you know, 10 bucks doesn't sound like much until you do it a million times. And then now, look at what you're spending on all this crap. So, so first of all, when you buy a bundle from an internet provider. You're getting your telephone, you're getting your internet, you're getting your TV. The price of that generally reduces the cost of each individual service so that your bundle price is the same price, right? That's the deal. You're buying these three things bundled so that you can pay a little bit lower overall rather than separately. When you unbundle and you say, I want internet only, your cost of internet goes up slightly. It's still less than the overall total, but it I does know. go up yeah. a little bit. So so that happens. Um you know, I, I think I may have told you the story of how I got fiber, right? Yeah. You know, I, I was with Time Warner Cable, and I'd been paying them for internet only, and they decided to jump the bill up and were absurd about it. They wanted to jump the bill from 89 to 129 and I told them no and went to fiber at more than triple the speed for 99 So I made a $10 increase for triple the speed. Uh so far, that's working out pretty well for me. The services, you know, you're right. Your $10 Netflix, your $11 or $7.99, whatever it is, Hulu, depending on if you go for their non-commercials offer or not. And then you pay another 30 or 40 for channels. Now you're right back up to paying what you were paying when you had a cable bundle. You're not, you're not actually saving maybe any Maybe more, depending on how you're buying in. And you're missing out on channels too that's, sometimes because there are certain channels that you just can't get with some of these streaming providers or whatever. And, and you know, and, and, and your cable company is going to lock you into paying for them because you can sign on through these apps, you know, on your Apple TV. If you want to watch MTV or you want to watch whatever, you got to sign on through your cable provider on the on the app on your Apple TV to be able to watch it. And the cable company is going to bundle you because they know they're going to get you for the home internet. So they say, well, like you said, it's going to be cheaper if you add in TV for the total package. And then right now, like the thing that they do with Spectrum in New York, uh, formerly Time Warner, I have a landline on my on my account. And the only reason I have a, ha- a landline is because adding the landline makes the overall package cheaper. Why? I don't, I don't know why they do it that way, but they want to just lock you into these services. So you want to get internet alone. You're going to pay more for the internet than you would if you had bundled it with cable. And so when you add it all up, internet alone, plus your Netflix, plus your, you know, PlayStation view or whatever. Um, it, and then you can't log into half these apps to actually watch them. If you want to watch on demand through the app, 
uh, you're, you're spending more and it's less convenient. So a lot of people are just going to stick with cable. Someone's going to have to break through the system in some way. I hope Apple can break through the system. Uh, I, I have faith in them to do that. If anybody could do it, it's Apple. I just don't have faith in Apple to make good content. The only good content they've ever made are commercials, and they license that out to some of the best commercial you know, advertising brands in the world take care of it for them. Uh, okay, but aren't these hires from Sony and WGN trying to pick up people who are some of the best in the world? to be able to do the content in-house. I don't know that suits and those type of people are really the ones that are the best at making those decisions. You know, I don't want to get too inside the the film industry or whatever like that, but for every Kevin Feige who's done very well with Marvel, uh, you have uh, some idiots that basically stumble their way to success. Um, you know, and for all these studios, when they try to do things, you know, you look at the struggles of, of, uh, compare Kevin Feige at Marvel to what Fox did stumbling their way until Deadpool and Logan came around with the X-Men franchise or how they've tried to reboot Fantastic Four a number of times. And it's been a disaster every time you look at what Sony did with Spider-Man. You look at what, um, uh, uh, DC and Warner has done, even though they're all under the same umbrella in trying to reboot those characters and basically almost accidentally found success with Wonder Woman, even though uh, uh, the previous films in that in that uh, universe were terrible. You can't trust these suits to make great decisions. You have to get good filmmakers in there and you have to take some risks. And Apple, like you said, they're the dad genes of creating content. Uh, they, they are the people that uh, want to have mass market junk, you know, popcorn, everybody's happy, leave with a smile on your face kind of stuff. Um, I, I just don't. Well, they're risk averse. Yeah, they, they are. And you have to take risks in doing these things in order for them to be successful. You know, you look back on it now and it seems like a no brainer. But for Kevin Feige and Marvel to try to do this cinematic universe was a huge risk. The likes of which had never been seen in film. And they were doing that before they were even owned by Disney. They started laying that down. So and it obviously paid off for them in big ways. But uh, creatively, you have to you have to take some risks. You have to do something. And and a reality show starring Gwyneth Paltrow and and uh, and and Will, Will I, I am. Yeah. yeah. Gary yeah, Vaynerchuk. Uh, and Jessica Alba uh, talking about apps uh, while somebody comes down a giant escalator is, uh, as far as, as uh, generating buzz or excitement or getting people to talk about your network or your service going, it's just a big wet fart. Well, that's an appealing <laughs> vision. Here I was about to propose that you and I should do our own app show. It would be better than that crap. At least, at least we'd have some interesting opinions and it wouldn't be all gimmicks. Well, and we'd talk about what the business part of the app is and, and whose problem you're trying to solve and, and how does this all work and why is it a thing that anyone needs? Well, and it wouldn't be so formulaic, yeah. too. I mean, you know, these reality show templates that are out there where, you know, it's so clearly edited in such stupid ways and, you know, everything has to be, you know, this certain structure. It's embarrassing. It's downright embarrassing. And I hope that the executives coming in, I hope the suits can 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 do something good. But from, from what I've seen of the entertainment industry, a lot of times, even those guys are just kind of like, they don't really have good taste. (laughs) It's, it's usually the filmmakers and the creators themselves that are the ones that have the taste and the vision. Um, and, and the execs are just like bean counters. Yeah. Well, we're going to move from execs to specs. And the spec here is a little PSA that we have about Thunderbolt 3 cables. Yeah, just so very quickly, um, I would encourage people to check out this article. Thunderbolt 3 cables right now are a mess. 
Um, generally speaking, if they're longer than a half a meter, they don't offer USB 3.1 speeds for USB connections. Um, some of them have different bandwidth throughputs when doing Thunderbolt. Some of them don't have um, uh, the full power rated capabilities to power, say, like a 15-inch MacBook Pro. Um, even Apple's own cable that ships with the MacBooks uh, doesn't do high-speed data transfers. It only does USB 2 data transfers uh, because it's intended as a power cable, not a data cable. So uh, right now, the USB-C slash... This, this is a garbage Yeah, fun. USB-C slash Thunderbolt 3 is a mess. USB-C is a port, not a technology. USB 3.1 is the technology. It can be used in tandem with Thunderbolt 3, but there are limitations. Check out the article. Um, get caught up to speed. You'll be probably even more confused than you were when you started, but uh, like you said, it's a garbage fire. Yeah, there, there are seven different... USB-C cables, some of them Thunderbolt 3, some of them not, all different specs, all different transfer speeds. And the, the problem is that you go to the store, you're going to buy whatever cable is cheapest because you're budget-minded. And that cable will not actually do what you think it should. An identical-looking cable that costs lots more will actually accomplish and what you intend to accomplish. And, and then a lot of people... And, is and then a lot of people aren't even going to realize this is nuts, right? they're just going to plug it in and it's going to it's going to be like when HDTVs first came out and people just had standard F stretched to fill up the whole picture and thought that they were getting the full picture. It's it's <laughs> worse though. It's even worse than that because you're going to go to a store and you're going to go to the Apple store and Apple's going to have you this cable for you and they'll have a couple of other ones and you'll buy one. You'll buy the Apple right cable. One. And you'll, you'll have buy no the Apple cable and you'll have USB 2 speeds. So, yeah, it's stupid. So, a, a valid question is how in the heck did Apple allow us to get into this situation? Because they embraced open standards. What was the point? <sighs> yeah. If they had made their own port, it wouldn't be an issue. But then people would freak out because Apple made their own port to compete with other devices. So they pushed adoption of USB-C. They may have pushed it a little too quickly. Um, and now they're caught in the crossfires of an industry trying to figure itself out. Okay. So you buy a Thunderbolt 3 accessory. It comes with an 18-inch cable. That cable is... <laughs> useless yep you can blame the thunderbolt 3 manufacturers for that for bundling cheap cables with it you can blame apple for that for bundling a cheap cable with theirs but any anything longer than 18 inches can be passive or active the passive ones had lower speed the active ones have transceivers in them but they cost more because they have transceivers in them and your speed is still limited to usb2 speeds it's it's um yeah moving on all right so we, we've talked about the iPhone 7S passively sort of in these past few months and weeks. And mostly we've said it's going to be nearly identical. The understanding is that it's not going to be absolutely identical. It's going to be nearly identical. So you're going to get a slightly thinner, thinner lens bump on the back, but that otherwise it's going to be slightly larger in all dimensions. Yeah, the the belief is that uh, to make it more durable, um, because they're supposedly switching to a glass chassis, which will allow for um, contact-based uh, inductive wireless charging, much like the glass back of the Apple Watch, uh, the structure of it will be a little more solid if it's a little bit thicker. So the iPhone 7S and 7S Plus may be slightly thicker uh, and won't fit your cases from your iPhone 7. I don't see this as that big of a deal. No, no, no. Uh, hold on. Hold on. So depending on the case, your cases for an iPhone 7 may well they fit could. 7s. Uh, I mean, iPhone 6 
cases fit the 6S kind of. They were a bit more snug because the 6S, uh, the aforementioned bend gate issue, uh, Apple went with a different metal material um, and uh, the, made the aluminum a little thicker. So the 6S was slightly thicker, thicker than the 6, uh, but it could be a situation like that where some of the cases won't fit, some will. Yeah, and the dimensions that we have. So an iPhone 7 is 138.3 millimeters by 67.1 millimeters by 7.1 millimeters. A 7S is rumored to be 138.44 millimeters by 67.27 millimeters by 7.21 millimeters. So Apple will make new cases specifically for the 7S if that's the case, so it will fit better. They did the same thing with the 6S versus the 6. Of, of course they will. And I'm just thinking about third-party manufacturers. You know, th- this is something that Apple has done for ages, whether it was the 4 and the 4S or or the iPad 2 to the iPad 3, where the iPad 3 was in fact thicker, but iPad 2 cases still fit. That That generally there is a better designed case for the specific device, but that the previous generation ones may fit close enough. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see this as that big of a deal. But you also have to consider that if you put a case on your phone and it covers the back, then you might prevent it from doing the wireless charging. So we will find out in a month. We will know more when we know more. Let's see here. Oh, I have a topic that is right up your alley, Neil. I have one yeah, just for you. I'm ready. Are you ready? Are you really? Am- are you sitting down? More smart connector products for iPad Pro are coming. Thank the Lord. And it's not just a rumor rumor. It's a conversation between manufacturers and Apple. And Apple itself says that vendors have products in I'm the I'm excited pipeline. to see what they do. I hope it's more than keyboards. Um, I imagine it's going to be a lot of keyboards, which is fine. Um, uh, I'm in the process of reviewing the Logitech uh, latest keyboard, the Slim whatever, um, Slim Combo. Um, and it's fine. Um, you know, different keyboards are going to suit different needs. Uh, thick, thicker ones yeah, that make it more like a I laptop. The, uh, Some people like that. I have the, I have the yeah, bridge. Yeah, the bridge is great. I, yeah. I love the bridge. I would love to see a bridge keyboard with a smart connector. But I would also like to see musical instruments and docking stations. And, you know, I don't know what the technical limitations are of the smart connector. Obviously, it's not going to be able to handle as much bandwidth as a lightning port does. Which is where I'd worry about musical but instruments. But it would be nice to... Uh, be able to eh, imagine if you had a few accessories that you used with your um, uh, that with your uh, iPad, like uh, you had a, a microphone that you plugged into it, and you wanted to do a wired keyboard and all that, and you wanted to just use them on a desk with a docking station. And uh, you know it would be nice to just be able to plop it down, have it connect with a smart connector, and just have it turn into whatever you need at that moment. And then you want to take your tablet on the go, you can do that. I think there's a lot of potential for that kind of stuff, um, and I could see myself doing that. I, what I see that people like about it is just the speed of being able to connect or disconnect without having to actually worry about how that connection is made or, or how it physically fits. You just, bing, it works, bing, bing, bang, boom, yeah. ready to go kind of thing. And it's certainly easier than Bluetooth Absolutely. pairing. But uh, I, I have to say, you know, you're reviewing that Logitech. I had the bridge for iPad Pro, the uh, the 12.9-inch yeah. one. That I like a nice keyboard. I still have mine. I, I will be writing it up for uh, for us. Not yeah, I have I have the uh, one for the nine point seven inch, and I think it's a great product. I mean, again, it's thick, it's heavy, um, but it turns your iPad into a laptop, 
Um, and it, the yes. hinges are excellent. Yeah. You know, they are, um, it looks good. Made yeah, out of it, aluminum. it looks good. It, it's a good product. And if that had smart connector, it would be an even better product. Well, they, you know, bridge commented for this article. They, they said that they believe that the implementation is a little bit problematic, that it limits it for vendors that, uh, you know, looking ahead for them, there's no reason why the smart connector wouldn't be considered for future bridge products if the application right. is right. And, and, you know, I, I understand what they're talking about. First of all, there's just the physical limitations of it is you have these two hinges to make it into a laptop kind of arrangement. What do you do? Put the smart connector on a flex cable or, you know, how, how do you make that work in a way that isn't messy? You know, considering it can charge the iPad and it does data in two directions and can send power out to devices like a backlit keyboard. Um, I see a lot of potential there for not just keyboards, for uh, unique ways of, of turning the iPad into something else. And I am hopeful that uh, Apple works something out with, with manufacturers, maybe gets the licensing down a little easier, what have you. Uh, but let's see some cool new stuff. Let's make it a pro iPad. Let's make mm -hmm. the iPad pro again. That was terrible. But speaking of things that are not terrible, I have CarPlay to talk about. So in this latest week we've had, the week that was, Sony has given people a preview of the XAV AX200, which is a terribly named product, uh, Apple CarPlay support radio. The unit is a 6.4-inch touchscreen, also runs Android Auto, um, has a DVD player has Bluetooth, steering wheel input, uh, supports FLAC for lossless audio via USB, and has Sirius XM radio support, which is very cool. They have uh, four volt preamp outs, which is not terrible. It's not the most we've ever seen, but it's certainly acceptable. And they're doing 55 watts per channel inside. What's interesting for some of our listeners about this one is, so there's this debate that goes on every time we publish about CarPlay. And you see it in the comments. And some people want as large a screen as possible. Give me that 6.9-inch screen. Use everything that you can do on a doubled-in unit and make it all touchscreen. And some people love that. Some people, the other people, reject that entirely and say, you know what? I, what I really need is a strip of buttons and a knob. Yeah. I want a volume knob. I want a mode knob. I want, I want physical controls to touch. And when you do, that means sacrificing some of the screen size which is what Sony has done here. Sony gives you a 6.4-inch display because they have a left panel control strip. And the control strip has a home button. It has a, a knob for both pushing and controlling options as well as doing volume. And it's got forward and back controls on it. Those things, if you're, just, if you're the sort of person that really desires having a physical control, this might be the unit for you. What I like about this from the look of it is that, uh, so a couple of years ago, there was a JBL unit, a JBL CP100, that as far as I can tell, never actually released, but it was a beautiful unit. It was simplified down to just the bare basics of what you absolutely had to have to do CarPlay well, to do a radio well, and had just a, a few short buttons on it. And this Sony looks like the rebirth of that concept. It looks like it delivers on the promise of what JBL was trying to do, and I'm hopeful that it does. So we will try and get one of those in here to be able to evaluate it more deeply for you. In the past week, we've had the wireless CarPlay unit from Alpine installed, the ILX107, and I have to say that's been brilliant. It, it really has. We've had some good questions from listeners. Some of our, our best educated listeners have asked questions like, uh, 
when you have two phones associated with it, when you get in the car at the same time, what does the unit do? What does it associate with? And uh, one of the things we learned is that when you have two phones that are paired with a, a wireless CarPlay unit, that whichever phone was in use last by it is the one that dominates the connection. And that it's very easy in Alpine's version of their uh, settings within two taps to be able to change to the other phone. There's a, a phone's icon in the upper right display of the radio in its home screen. So you tap once there and it shows you all the phones and whether or not they're connected or you can delete them or manage them. And so you just tap connect to the other one and it takes over. It's really slick. The, uh, the other good question we had this week was about using backup cameras. And all of these systems are capable of working with backup cameras, but they're, they're all capable for sure with, with aftermarket ones. And aftermarket backup cameras are available anywhere from $20, $25 on up to as much as $150. And some of the car radio fan manufacturers are bundling the backup camera with the radio. So if you get some of the Pioneer units, for example, the camera comes in the box for some of their newer units. The, thing to say specifically about this is that what if your car already has an OEM backup camera installed on it from the manufacturer? And for that, the same thing that applies to steering wheel controls applies, which is there's very likely an adapter that can help you adapt the connector on your OEM camera to the stereo that um, you just have to check and see what compatibility is like from the interface makers, which are usually things like Pack Audio or Metra or Access Interface, which is part of Metra. Uh, they tend to provide the adapters for these sorts of things. And I would say this, if your OEM camera is not easily adapted to work with an aftermarket system, that I would consider replacing the camera with one of the $25 units and use the same mounting, modify the mounting for the original one. The signals you have to have to do backup camera are a reverse signal to tell the radio when to, uh, to to look for the camera and when to switch to the camera interface. You have to have power to the camera and, um, and, and of course, the video signal itself. And you can actually combine the power and reverse signal into one if you use the, uh, the signal off of the backup bulbs as your signal for when to switch to reverse mode and when to power the camera. By virtue that you'll put the transmission in reverse, it'll apply power to the backup lights, and that will share power over to the signal input for reverse signal to the radio and, and powering on the camera. So you really only need four connections, um, which are positive and ground. So the camera, video itself, and the power, which doubles as the reverse signal. So it's not that hard to do, and there are options available to you whether or not you're going to use the OEM camera or an aftermarket one. But I have been very impressed with wireless CarPlay. Uh, so far, battery life is not really seriously impacted by using it wirelessly. There's there's some battery impact because you have to run the, the wireless Bluetooth and mm -hmm. uh, Wi-Fi antennas on the phone. But it, it hasn't really drained it down very fast just Good. driving around town with it on. And there's, there's a major convenience factor to it, which is, you know, when I get into the other car that has wired CarPlay... Um, if I'm just going for a short trip, I may not remember or bother to plug in the phone. But if I step into the other car that has the wireless CarPlay installed in it, it's just on. Nice. And it's on fast. And it, it works brilliantly. It really does. Um, one of the things that's an interface thing that has changed is that you, of course, get a battery signal right. on the CarPlay deck itself. Uh, traditionally, you get a blue bar up at the top of the menu bar on the phone. 
showing that you're connected to CarPlay, the same kind of blue bar that you'd get showing you that you were connected to a mm-hmm. personal hotspot. With wireless CarPlay, that is purple now. So I'm not sure what the meaning of that is Just or why they changed it, but it is now guess, purple yeah. at the menu bar. Yeah. So all very cool. And um, I, I continue to be impressed. Right now, Alpine is the only one doing wireless CarPlay in the aftermarket world. And that radio is the ILX-107, which is 100 more than the, uh, and by 100 more, I mean numerically, than the last year's model. It was the ILX-007, which was their first wireless CarPlay. The thing that Alpine gets right that everyone else could do some improving on is that there's there's always this um, distinction between the CarPlay interface and the radio interface. And the radio interface comprises its settings and its, its other inputs and FM radio kind of thing. And where Alpine really shines is that Alpine took a look at the, uh, the human interface guidelines for iOS That's and good. copied them pretty faithfully. Every every menu, every system view, every toggle switch for on off in Alpine's world looks faithfully like iOS. The volume overlay when you when you turn volume up and down on the radio, you get a rounded rectangle with numbers in the center of the display, just as if you were were seeing that kind of thing on Mac or on iOS when you volume up and down. Instead of the big speaker icon, they, they just show you the large numbers because seeing a big speaker icon is not as helpful. But it's that same gray overlay in the center. It's every part, I tell you, everything about it makes it look like it was designed for iOS because, well, it was. And it's good. You know, and that's really the best thing you can do for an older car, right? Is is people drive their cars for 10 years or more these days change the entertainment system. It's like having a whole new car. It is. Um, This one, like the Pioneer, comes with a GPS antenna that augments the the GPS ability for maps, for Apple Maps. You know, where where with your phone inside the car, the car acts as a shield kind of thing, preventing the signals from maybe uh, locating as quickly. Um, They have an accessory antenna that plugs into the back of the radio, and that works in conjunction with Apple Maps. So it gives you a good, strong GPS signal. Yeah, sounds like a good How much does it cost? Don't remember off the top of my head. That will be in our review that we'll post on appleinsider.com. Well, we've come to the end of another perfectly good episode of Apple Insider Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L, and you can read me on appleinsider.com. I'm Victor Marks. I'm at vmarks on Twitter. You can read my writings on appleinsider.com. I want to remind you that if any of you have products or services that you'd like to advertise to our listenership of really the best educated, best dressed, best informed people on the internet, please get in touch with us. I and Neil Dad Jeans Hughes will be back next week with more Apple Insider Podcast.